morning. Welcome to Rising. We have another monumental show for you today. In fact, GOP 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy will be joining us later in the show for an interview. We've got a lot of great questions for him, so we're really excited to do that. Uh, indeed, I'm looking forward to that as well. But first up, a new scoop from Axios suggests the Biden administration is trying to curb coverage of the Israel-Palestine war. In a recent meeting with American Jewish community leaders, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken revealed that he had asked the Qatari prime minister to reduce the rhetoric from Al Jazeera concerning the conflict in Gaza during his visit to Doha on October 13th. Per Axios, this request implies the U.S. government's concerns that Al Jazeera's framing of the conflict could contribute to escalating tensions in the region. Al Jazeera is funded by the Qatari government but claims to operate independently, although it has faced criticism for reflecting Qatar's foreign policy stance and has been accused by Israel of being a propaganda mouthpiece for Hamas. Blinken's request reportedly pertained to Al Jazeera Arabic, not Al Jazeera English, and aimed at reducing what he described as anti-Israel incitement in their coverage. However, specific examples of the heightened rhetoric were not provided during the meeting. The State Department declined to comment on Blinken's remarks about Al Jazeera, and the Qatari foreign ministry did not respond to requests for comment from Axios. Meanwhile, the leader of Lebanon's Hezbollah group held a meeting with senior figures from Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Beirut amid this ongoing conflict in Gaza. Ever since the events triggered by Hamas's incursion into Israel on October 7th, resulting in over 1,400 casualties in Israel and over 5,700 Palestinian casualties in Gaza, tensions have also escalated along the Lebanese-Israel border, with Hezbollah members engaging in exchanges of fire with Israeli troops since the day after Hamas's incursion. Now, in Syria, state media reported that an Israeli airstrike damaged the runway of Aleppo's international airport, rendering it out of service, although there was no immediate comment from Israel regarding this purported strike. A picture of a video of the alleged strike is up on the screen now, but that's not been verified, so take that with a grain of salt. In a statement carried by Hezbollah-run Lebanese state media, the leaders of Hezbollah, Hamas, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad aim to achieve a, quote, real victory for the resistance in Gaza and Palestine while halting Israel's, quote, treacherous and brutal aggression against our oppressed people in Gaza and in the West Bank. Now, this comes as calls for a ceasefire are ramping up. Up. On Tuesday, the World Health Organization called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza Strip so that vital resources can be sent to the territory amid the war between Israel and Hamas. Let's watch this recent speech from UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Now, that statement from the U.N. caused conservative Zionist commentator Ben Shapiro to write on X, vile moral equivalents from the leader of the most icely of international politics, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Oh, uh, should we just take that last one first, since it's fresh? Sure, I will be, and we will be talking about later in the show um, differences in foreign policy views on the right between Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, because Ben uh, went after Tucker as well. 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure why that kind of perfectly fine statement by the Secretary General opposing violence um, against uh, innocent Palestinians or the Palestinians as a people, while also acknowledging that what Hamas did was murderous and wrong, it seems fine to me. I'm not sure what there is to get worked up about it's, it. It's really difficult to understand, but that kind of rhetoric has been pervasive. You're right, not among all right-leaning figures, but certainly among this particular cohort. Um, it does feel, and we'll talk about later, I think, some of what is perceived as overreaches on the left, but it does seem like there are these incredible overreaches among these members of the right community who both have flip-flopped on some of the free speech concerns that they articulated before and who are doing—are are criticizing spe speech and language that does exactly as you described, that says, of course, I condemn the October 7th attacks, but also I condemn— uh, war crimes against civilians in Gaza. There have been almost 6,000 Gazans killed. Almost half of that population is children, and we should condemn them as well. At, a, at the point at which you are criticizing that kind of a statement, you're, you're kind of revealing that you believe that when one says Israel has the right to defend itself, it means, even if it means obliterating an entire civilian population in contravention of international law. And it's curious. I don't know what you would expect for the head of the UN to do except for at least articulate a desire to uphold international law. Yeah, I, I don't think it should be controversial to oppose both of those things. And I, you know, I disagree with some conservative commentators and, frankly, many Democratic commentators. And Absolutely. it's not at all a Absolutely. special feature of, of the right to be um, it's an over, yeah, overemphasizing yeah. Um, that Israel should be able to do whatever it wants. Yeah, that's that's not a that's not a perspective I share, and that's not a perspective a lot of people in the uh, contrarian foreign policy position on the right um, want. And and moreover, that we should not be co-signing what you know if, if Israel can and will take the actions it's going to take, but we don't need to be involved in those as well. Um, speaking of free speech concerns, what we started the segment with is. Definitely something to be very uh, angry about. This is exactly the same kind. I mean, I, we shouldn't be surprised at all because the Biden administration takes the position that it can browbeat um, media outlets everywhere into echoing um, its own talking points, that it can threaten social media companies into censoring content that conflicts with their agenda, as we saw about COVID um, so many times. So it's it's totally in keeping with how Joe Biden and his acolytes feel about what their relationship to media outlets should be. And this is the exact danger um, of, of having a—the government has some right to police misinformation or hate speech on social media. Who gets to define what that is? There's no actual ag agreement. A lot of things one person finds hateful, one other person thinks is true, and you should be able to discuss them. And putting pressure on a media organization—I um, I, I guess a, a media organization not headquartered in the U.S. is not necessarily under First Amendment protection, but certainly our government officials should still be constrained from doing that kind of thing. And, and what's interesting about the, the story is that— there, there's no evidence given. There's not, not even an attempt to point to specific stories or to any types of coverage that that the, the U.S. is saying is incendiary or a, prob a problem. Right. I do think that. But even if it was, we should have. I mean, if right. they could find tons of examples of very incendiary anti-Israel content in Al Jazeera or otherwise, I would still say it's utterly inappropriate for Blinken to do anything. But I, about I do it. think that the problem um, is that telling the truth. Uh, is potentially perceived as incendiary if the truth involves reporting on 
For example, Glenn Greenwald just surfaced a World Health Organization report that says Gaza's entire hospital system is on the brink of collapse, saying that there are, quote, 400 children repeatedly either killed or injured daily. Hospitals are forced to perform surgeries without anesthesia, a horrifying humanitarian crisis. You know, if you're reporting on the sheer number of um, deaths of civilians, including the large number of children, it's the pictures themselves of the violence that's being inflicted on the population of Gaza is incendiary, then what are you saying? That Al Jazeera reporting on the truth is, is a problem? And in fact, there was a really telling interview. Um, Israel's former prime minister, Yair Lapid, uh, that went around, was going around over the course of the last 24 hours or so, in which he basically argues exactly that. He said, quote, if the international media is objective, it serves Hamas. If, if, if former prime ministers are basically acknowledging that reporting the news is a problem for Israel and our government is now also participating in trying to enact that censorship on one of the only ongoing reporting uh, outlets that's there, the, the reason that we have all of that video footage live of the bombing of the hospital is because Al Jazeera had a live feed. And we're going to return to that story a little bit later um, in the program. But the idea that that video one of the only pieces of evidence we've had to parse to see what really happened that night on October 17th would be in any way suppressed, I think should be deeply concerning for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Not uh, not the domain of government to decide what news media um, can cover. And it's, it's alarming. Again, when we purport to defend liberal values, enlightenment values, just as in, you know, Ukraine, we think it's very important to support, or the U.S. government thinks it's very important to, to support uh, Ukraine and the Zelensky regime, even though Zelensky banned dissident uh, f newspaper, you know, attacked the free press, attacked um, uh, rival political parties that, you know, what are, we, what are we fighting for if we give up those values in a conflict? Those values are specifically for conflict. And we'll be talking about a lot of these subjects more later on the show, more Rising Right after this. House Republicans nominated Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana to be the speaker-designate, marking the fourth nominee in just three weeks. Here he is after the vote last night. It's been quite a process. <laughs> Democracy is messy sometimes, but it is our system. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority, is united. We have a very busy agenda. We have appropriations bills to get through the process, but you are going to see this group looking, working like a well-oiled machine. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy actually came in second, surpassing Representative Byron Donalds, who is also running. Congressman Tom Emmer joined the top spot for about four hours yesterday, but abruptly dropped out of the race, asked about the opposition to the Minnesota Congressman. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene had this to say. His voting record is what turned me. He had voted against President Trump's ban on transgenders in the military. He voted for the Democrats' gay marriage bill that opens up uh, churches and other places for lawsuits if they, if they use their faith and stand against it. He was for the national popular vote. Um, at one time, and that's that's not a movement I can support. You How much did Emmer's vote to certify the 2020 election have to do with the opposition against him? Well, it played a big role for me. I voted to object, um, and, and I don't think uh, that that was a fair election. I think there was a lot of election fraud. 
Speaking of Trump, the former president blasted Immer on Truth Social after he won the nomination, writing, he's out of touch with the base, adding, quote, voting for a globalist rhino like Tom Immer would be a tragic mistake. It's unclear if Johnson can pull 217 votes needed to win the gavel by noon today, which is when the House is set to vote. And CNN's Jake Tapper called the whole situation a clown car. Let's watch. I'm covering life and death issues, serious tragedies, serious momentous occurrences here in Israel and, of course, in Gaza. And, of course, we have to interrupt this for one moment to cover the complete and utter clown car at the end, that is the House Republican speaker's race back in Washington, D.C. So who is Johnson? Uh, apparently, he's a social conservative who doesn't transgress in the ways that Marjorie Taylor Greene described. Um, she was against the popular vote. She was against the gay mm -hmm. uh, marriage bill and the interracial marriage bill. Um, and uh, this this fellow—and uh, she was also—there was some question about whether or not um, uh, he was sufficiently supportive of Trump in his— defense of uh, his, his claims of overturning the election. Right. That's not the case for Mr. Johnson. Apparently, he's a lawyer. He was formerly the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. And he served on President Trump's impeachment defense team. Uh, and he also played a role in recruiting House Republicans to sign a legal brief supporting a lawsuit seeking to overturn the 2020 election results. So he is much more clearly on team Trump and sort of the uh, election contesting or election denialism camp seems to have appeased that faction of the Republican Party. The question is if he can get to 217. Well, and he also, very importantly, is against more funding for Ukraine. Mm. Um, that's a policy position he has that is probably highly relevant um, here. And I, I agree with what he said when he pointed out that, yes, democracy is messy. This is just democracy at work. I don't quite understand the—you know, I got no beef with Jake Tapper, but the, like— uh, how dare people take multiple votes on who should be the leader of the of the caucus and then of the of the chamber? That's what the the, the process is just working itself out. Um, it's better when there's robust debate and disagreement over who leadership who should occupy the leadership position. These are differences, ideological differences and personality differences being worked out. That's better than everyone just marching in lockstep because they have no choice and no say over who is in is in leadership. I'm glad that there's at least some disagreement over um, the American funding priorities in the Republican Party, and that's getting worked out. And frankly, I think it would be good for them to empower a speaker who has a—especially at this moment we're in, who perhaps—we uh, obviously we have to learn more about the totality of his foreign policy views. Including his views on funding Israel. For sure. But, um, but it is willing to challenge um, some aspects, at least, of, of interventionist uh, neoconservative um, orthodoxy is an encouraging and healthy sign, and obviously it is a, it is will be a good sign if he, personality-wise, is uh, is appeasing enough to some of the more establishment figures that they you know don't feel like they're rewarding a, a bad actor since they're they're never going to get to a to a speaker um, unless that happens. So uh, we'll see. This vote is expected to take place, I think, within the hour, and yeah. we'll see if he has. Obviously, it's been so dramatic in the shakeups, like Tom Emmer was. The, was was the guy for a while, and then Trump spoke up on Truth Social and was like, no, I hate this guy, screw him. And Tom Emmer was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to get out of the race before people in my own coalition, before Republicans start scrutinizing my record too much, so, so that he doesn't get, like, tarred as a globalist rhino. 
forever. Um, yeah. So we'll see how Johnson fares, but I think the signs for him are much more encouraging. Well, the New York Times is reporting that apparently after the, the initial closed-door vote, only a few Republicans indicated that they would not back Do uh, Mr. Johnson on the floor, but there were about 20 Republicans not present, and you know they can't lose more than a few if all the Democrats show up, that is. I think the, the magic number was they can miss four. Uh, so this still seems incredibly close. Um, it's hard to believe that this would end at this juncture, especially given that we still are, you know, more than two weeks out from the ultimate uh, funding deadline. They can keep doing this for a while longer if they want. Right. So if you're Matt Gates or part of that faction and you wanted to make a point, why would you stop making your point at this juncture, especially for this very little known um, fellow, unless you think you can get some commitments out of him in terms of advancing your particular interest? There was some reporting, I can't remember from, from which mainstream outlet, so I, I don't know whether it's accurate or, or not, that Jim Jordan is not totally done seeking more influence if, if he can't get the speakership himself and would perhaps like to do a, where he's assistant speaker, deal mm -hmm. with McCarthy. McCarthy mm -hmm. back in and Jim Jordan gets to be assistant speaker, you know, this is like assistant so, manager or yeah. assistant to the manager. I, I, I saw Chris, Chris Hayes made the joke, assistant yeah. to the regional Many manager. People. Many people made the joke. Yeah, look, I, I do think if I have some criticism for the Matt Gates faction, it is that there are specific demands that I think gave them some legitimacy and credibility here have very much gone to the wayside, either because they're not being covered, reporters aren't interested in them, or because they're not coming to the media, he's not coming to the media and articulating why he's doing this in the first place, vociferously enough. So I do think this is ultimately a media game. This is a public opinion game. And it's incumbent on the holdouts to make the case to the American public why they're justified in doing so. Mm. Well, we will probably have an update if that vote <laughs> does take place while we're filming our show today. So look out for more information from us on that. More Rising right after this. Donald Trump and his ex-fixer Michael Cohen came face-to-face -face in a New York courtroom where Attorney General Letitia James' civil fraud case against the former president is playing out. Cohen, a key witness, testified that Trump directed him and Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg to inflate his assets. But he might have a credibility issue, a point Trump's legal team tried to establish. Trump answered reporters' questions outside the courtroom after yesterday's session wrapped up. Let's watch. How'd it feel to see Michael Cohen again? Uh, well, I haven't seen him in years. And uh, you know his record. His record is a horrible one. All you have to do is ask the Southern District of New York. He's got a horrible record. But they're just starting. But you'll see how it ends. What about his testimony? It's not end up very good what about his testimony? We're not worried at all about okay. his testimony. Asked how he felt about seeing his old boss, Cohen had this to say. Michael, how did you feel to see Donald Trump again? <laughs> I don't know. They have a little bit of this dynamic to me, where uh, you know that the the the, uh, the meme, the Madman meme. Um, I, I I think you're petty, and Don Draper says I don't think about you at all. This <laughs> is <laughs> the way they, they seem to go. Look, this is um, not one of, to my mind, the uh, more uh, important legal issues sure. Trump is tied up in. Michael Cohen does have. Um, credibility problems, which is not to say that I, I think the average person is Why probably willing to believe that um, there was financial malfeasance <laughs> involving the Trump um, organization. Well, because he, I mean, they 
um, the law enforcement went after him. I mean, it's a little bit like the everybody flipping on Trump sure. in the Georgia circumstance, where, of, of course, he's going to say, you know, when he arranged um, allegedly illegal payments, he's going to say, well, that was done with Trump's mastery and expertise. And but is I was there really a credibility issue? Is there any real argument that uh, Cohen was trying to benefit himself by paying off a woman that Trump had had a, a intimate relationship with? Do you know what I mean? No, but the argument being that, I mean, Trump probably just told him to handle it and doesn't necessarily know the details of the. I mean, I think that would be the argument that um, that they're going to make. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it's it, it doesn't. I don't know that it's important compared to all the other things he's facing. Yeah, look, and especially since jail time isn't attaching to this one, it's just a, a civil trial. Uh, I think the concern is the Georgia case, some of the other indictments that could potentially put him behind bars. And there is this race to the race of the clock of prosecutors trying to try this case prior to the election for that very reason, and Donald Trump, for obvious reasons, wanting to push it out as long as possible, hopeful that if he wins an election, that might preclude him from having to take res criminal responsibility, at least until a delay period of time. So it is interesting to watch, but hardly as impactful, at least in the electoral sense, as some of the other uh, cases that are ongoing. Yeah, Michael Cohen isn't even as like interesting a figure as Sidney Powell, right? <laughs> uh, from a from a television standpoint, from from our entertainment standpoint, which is so much of uh, what we're hoping to get out of Trump trials. I, I guess so. If, if the we, I don't know who the we is exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think a lot of this audience is not especially interested in, in that, but I do think they they are invested in whether or not the candidate that's being put forward at this time as the as a leader at the PAC and the GOP is actually going to be the one that has any chance of clinching the nomination and running in the general election. Yeah, I mean, the GOP, I, the, the MAGA perspective is that um, a th prosecutors, law enforcement, the Democratic Party, Democratic prosecutors were going to keep trying until they found something they could get to stick on Trump um, that will obviously not stop him necessarily for running for president, but will make it so difficult and put it maybe beyond the pale for gettable um, Americans. That's going to be what happens in Georgia, most yeah. likely. I mean, it is also no notable that uh, apparently the New York Times reported that uh, Michael Cohen uh, had these credibility issues from when he, uh, and back in 2018, admitted to lying under oath when he pled guilty to federal, t federal crimes at that time. That's over his head a little bit. But it is worth noting that what he was testifying to here as well was this the particular question of whether or not Trump inflated his assets. And what he said was, quote, I was tasked by Mr. Trump to increase the total assets based upon a number that he arbitrarily elected, um, saying that it was his responsibility to, quote, increase those assets in order to achieve the number. So that'll play out. Will be That'll be determined, obviously, in the course of this trial as a factual matter. Yesterday, we learned that Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff under President Trump, has been granted immunity by special counsel Jack Smith, this according to ABC News, which broke the story first. Meadows, who testified in the Georgia election fraud case, purportedly told Smith's team he told the former president his claims that the election was rigged were baseless claims. So now everyone's saying that they tried to stop him, and they just they just couldn't. He just kept going forward with it. This is the kind of thing that is going to be very hard for Trump to dodge as these trials move forward. The fact that he's going to have so many former associates, um, perhaps just to avoid liability themselves, flipping and throwing Trump under the bus. Um, is just going to be very damaging for his case and continue to be damaging. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it seem credible to you 
I understand people wanting to put forward kind of exculpatory uh, uh, testimony, but it is also true that we've seen any number of people, like Bill Barr, who cut their associations or had their associations with Trump cut long before some of these co-defendants that are being charged in this case, echo very similar sentiments, saying he sought the advice of counsel. We were all his counsel. We told him this plan wouldn't work. We told him that disputing the elect, that there was no credibility to his claims of election fraud. And for that, we were either fired or put at arm's length or attacked in the public sphere. So there is, to me, a sort of consistency there between the, te the testimony that we've heard already from people who are long outside of um, Donald Trump's circle and what we're hearing now, even if it is self-serving in that way. Well, I guess. But wait, Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell and some of those people are not, or did not specifically admit that they they, or they they didn't claim that they tried to dissuade Trump from this cause, right? I, Meadows is saying that. Yeah. Um, and and whether Meadows actually did or not is, I, I, I don't know. I, I would be perfectly willing to believe that he and other figures are going to try to por portray themselves positively. No, we gave Trump good information. We, to we told him it was not stolen, and then he just persisted in doing this anyway. I mean, that's... Again, that is that is how the case is going to be set up in order to to doom Donald Trump. And of course, we, we should be clear, Trump's just Trump just persisting in his belief that the election was stolen from him is not illegal. It doesn't he he has that the right to free speech and the right to express his opinion on that matter. Uh, the question is going to become, in particularly the Georgia indictment, is there evidence of actually um, engaging in fraudulent behavior, the forging of documents, um, trying to convene a, a gathering of the of the of, of, of illegitimate electors in a public meeting place, things you can actually attach criminality to that these associates were involved in that they're going to say that Trump organized, regardless of whether that's the case or not. Do you is there any any inkling in your mind that someone other than Trump in his orbit would have independently and without Trump's backing sought to put together the alleged scheme to submit a fake slate of electors? I mean, I, I find it certainly possible that he was not actually the mastermind behind this doomed effort. It's interesting, because Trump's statement so far, I mean, the argument, there's no evidence of the argument, the counterargument from Trump is going to be, oh, yes, there was a conspiracy to overturn the election, but uh, Mark Meadows did it, not me. Uh, one of the, it was one of their ideas, not, not my idea. His argument is that Trump is going to I, gen I sincerely right. believe the election was stolen, and I he thought everything that it. I was doing and the actions was that legal. he was taking were legitimate. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have to see how that plays out. More rising right after this. Conservative commentator Ben Shapiro is unloading on former Fox News host Tucker Carlson over his recent comments on Israel and Hamas. During a sit-down conversation, Carlson and retired Army Colonel Douglas McGregor suggested United States support for Israel and its war against Hamas could lead to a war with Iran, and Carlson appeared to mock the idea that the United States would score moral victories in the conflict, while McGregor accused Israel of committing war crimes, Mediate reports. Here's Shapiro's reaction to that conversation. There are some people on the right who I think are being fully disingenuous and who are looking for an excuse to jump right on the same moral equivalency bandwagon as the left. I think there are certainly people like that. We've talked about them on the show before. I'm sure we'll talk about them on the show again. 
But one of the moves that's being made in order to stifle Israel's response to this is to claim that if Israel does respond, as it has to respond in order to root out Hamas entirely, that this will end in World War III. So yesterday, Tucker had on his program a general named Douglas McGregor. McGregor has in the past suggested that Jewish money is behind American support for Israel and all the rest. But McGregor has military expertise. And he is essentially now warning that Armageddon is coming, which... And his proposed solution would be that Israel does nothing, which, by the way, absolutely promotes the idea of Armageddon. Because if Israel does nothing after 1,500 of its citizens are slaughtered and Hamas remains in place, the chances of a broad-scale multi-front attack on Israel that will require American intervention. He later called Tucker's take bizarre and ugly and said it is not a conservative position. So this isn't the first time these two have clashed. They do. They have different views on what constitutes a conservative uh, ideology, uh, particularly with respect to foreign policy. Ben Shapiro, now, I, I don't, so I don't agree with him. He, he says that people like Tucker are doing the kind of moral equivalency that the left is doing. And it, in my commentary here, in my clashes with you, I have tried to make clear that I do not think there is a moral equivalency at work here between Hamas and what Israel is doing, and I have vociferously criticized um, wrongdoing that I've seen the Israeli government committing while saying nothing it compares to the terrorist attacks. But all of that is different from saying that we have some obligation to aid the Israeli government and to, like, never criticize it. I mean, I don't—it's not conservative to unthinking—in my view, maybe Ben Shapiro thinks it is—to unthinkingly support anything, like, what our own government does. So why would we unthinkingly fund and support what a foreign government is doing? And I think that the Tucker's—Tucker uh, conservatives are questioning whether uncompromising, unconditional support for a foreign government— be it Israel, be it Ukraine, be it someone else, serves U.S. national security issues. So on the national security front, I think that Ben Shapiro seems uninformed. He doesn't really even choose to make an argument there. He just says, oh, it's crazy to think this is going to lead to World War III. There are literally drone attacks happening on U.S. bases in the region that the U.S. has already indicated if its soldiers die, it will be pulled into the conflict. It's already talking about—it's shipped aircraft carriers to the region and is talking about supporting Israel in a ground invasion. So the idea that this is likely leading to an escalation, that it could involve an entanglement, the likes of which we just got out of in Afghanistan, is not fantasy. It is a very real probability, very real probability that many people who are much more expert than Ben Shapiro are warning of. This question of moral equivalency is confusing to me. I'm a little confused, what does that mean? Are we saying that we cannot morally wait the fact that more children have died in Gaza, have been killed by Israeli forces in Gaza, than the total number of people that have been killed in the horrific events of October 7th? Is it moral equivalency to say that I value those lives equally and that given there is an ongoing tragedy that is now eclipsing in pure number of bodies in Gaza, the number of people who were murdered in Israel, that announcing that 
of course, I think all people are equal and all human lives are equal. So of course I want to draw moral equivalencies between the tragedy of innocent civilians being killed in Israel and the tragedy of innocent civilians being killed in Gaza. And to say, we have the power to stop the latter. We absolutely should use our influence as a country to do so. That seems to me to be what Ben Shapiro is objecting to. And given some of his former statements on Arabs, I think some people are going to be asking the question whether or not what he's really objecting to is not some kind of moral equivalency that downplays the gravity of what happened to those Israeli civilians, but one in which he wants to downplay the gravity of what's happening to Palestinians, who he has described like this in the past. He said, Israelis like to build, Arabs like to bomb crap and live in open sewage. This is not a difficult issue. He, was, he said that in defense of settlements, saying hashtag settlements rock. Those are illegal settlements, by the way, that are condemned by the international community. So what, what are we talking about here when, we, when he's articulating that there's some kind of moral equivalency that we should condemn? I mean, he's condemning the support among leftist activists on college students and with several groups. No, he was talking the, about— Let me finish their support for what Hamas did in the terrorist He was attack. specifically talking about Tucker Carlson, Robbie. This is a clip about no, Tucker he was, Carlson. When you, you said he was accusing Tucker Carlson yes. of co-signing— what the what leftist activists are saying about the and is, conflict? Is Tucker Carlson which I don't, doing that? No, I don't think not. it's true. But of the but leftist activists are in fact doing. I, that. I know you want to have a conversation about Tucker Carlson, but this is a conversation about Ben Shapiro. I'm sorry, about leftist activists. This is a conversation about Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson. All right, you you asked me what was being alleged. That's, that is so, yes, and, I think that's an unfair smear for Tucker Carlson. Irrelevant. It's an un, it, but it's not an unfair smear against. Um, activist groups who are endorsing no, and, and over in and fact, over again what Hamas has activist done. Activist groups and the majority of people, the hundreds of thousands of people across the world and the country who were out in support of Palestinian rights over the weekend, and since this crisis became right. on, the, on the public scene again, and the crisis is ongoing, obviously the occupation of Gaza uh, is ongoing and has been going on for 75 years. But the most recent protests are a lot of people who are wanting to free Palestine. And the idea that you would cherry pick specific instances to devalue an entire argument of people, including many folks who don't even want to, frankly, end the occupation, but do want a ceasefire to end the hundreds and hundreds of people that are being killed on a daily and weekly basis, is, I think, really inappropriate. And to not want to engage— I'm, I'm Wait a minute. literally just publicizing their own words, the and, words and, of organizations well, like DSA and Black Lives and Matter. I, and I want and, to publicize the words of Ben Shapiro. Who and I'm it. not cutting you off from doing that. We're talking about it. I don't agree with what Ben so Shapiro has to say. I think his in this in his disagreement with Tucker Carlson here, I am much more in the Tucker Carlson camp. Well, I, I'm trying so, to engage in the statements that he's made about Arabs that show that are some evidence that he fundamentally does not value their lives equally as Israeli lives. When you say that Israeli Israelis like to build, and Arabs like to live in sewage and bomb things, that's a pretty clear indication to me that you don't really value Arab life. Right. It's bad. And what I am most concerned about his perspective is that is it an excuse for a greater conflict, uh, greater involvement on the U.S. part? And frankly, the there, there's a little bit of like a rhetorical sleight of hand going on here by saying, well, it's not going to cause World War III. Like, it, I, I don't know if greater U.S. involvement in this in this conflict would spill into like a confrontation with what China and Russia and you know the world powers that would maybe kick this conflict up to where you could credibly call it World War III. But it would still be like we don't want a repeat of the Iraq War and what happened in Libya and what's happening in the U.S. involvements, which 
did not constitute World War III, but were, were horrible for the region, were not good for the U.S., that the American people of all political parties widely agree upon now were mistakes. So even if it's not there's, if it's not World War III that's going to break out, it's still not some conflict we want to be a part of. Yeah, and my con concern is not only that, it's that Ben Shapiro and a number of others, including people in our own government, have used language that denigrates the value of Palestinian lives and seems to be setting up for an ongoing genocide and ethnic cleansing that humanitarian organizations have been calling attention to, especially in the wake of this crisis. So it's very curious to see someone like Benjamin Shapiro uh, who has said in the past, he has been very um, protective of people's rights, if you want to talk about college campuses, to say what they want. He's been very critical of students who have tried to cancel folks on college campuses. But just recently, uh, last week, he tweeted out, if you work in the media, this is a specific media criticism, if you work in the media and uncritically and reflexively parrot the genocidal, Jew-hating, terrorist, liars, Hamas, you should be fired. Now, earlier, we did a segment on how our own government is trying to suppress reporting from Al Jazeera because it's arguing that it is repeating Hamas talking points. We saw this with Russiagate. If Russia puts out a tweet that says black Americans are treated poorly in America and a black American agrees, that was considered in the middle of the 2020 election to be agreeing with a Russian talking point. Everything that's inconvenient to Hillary Clinton was agreeing with a Russian talking point. And I see a very similar pattern happening here, where everything oh, yeah. that is critical of Israel is described as a Hamas talking point. And this is a radical departure for Ben Shapiro, who previously said virtually no one should be canceled for speaking about politics in unapproved ways, to now be lockstep with our federal government and trying to suppress foreign news outlets. Yeah, well, we have no disagreement there. I think it's an obvious hypocrisy for people on the right um, to take the position that on this issue, this is a bridge too far. This is hate speech. We're gonna, and we're going to talk more about this in a, a subsequent um, segment about specifically what Ron DeSantis is doing um, on this topic. But I, yeah, I think it's obviously hypocritical. Now, also, a lot of the people criticizing, not not you, but a lot of the people I, I see criticizing in like kind of the liberal uh, sector, uh, criticizing Ben Shapiro and others for this kind of thing, have no history of of being against cancel culture or being in support of free speech anyway, like so who? I'm not sure what they think. Like who? Because the left has been very consistent on this. Yeah, I'm not tagging you or the left, but um, again, the, the the armies of people who think that misinformation should be broadly censored, that... Well, um, those people, the misinformation crew is generally establishment libs who are, like um, Ben Shapiro, very much uh, in favor of the Zionist project. Yeah, and I disagree with that, too. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. Okay, all right. Well, stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. President Biden will not be on the ballot in the New Hampshire primary per the Hill POTUS campaign and the state Democratic Party. Campaign manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez cited guidance put forth by the Democratic National Committee that urged Democratic campaigns to forego placing candidates' names on the ballot. In a statement on X, formerly Twitter, state Democratic Party chair Raymond Buckley 
pointed out that the president was already winning New Hampshire, adding voters there, quote, known and trust Joe Biden. That's why he is leading Trump in New Hampshire by double digits. Meanwhile, GOP presidential contender Vivek Ramaswamy tore into Biden's camp, uh, writing on X, quote, identity politics is a cancer on America and now the electoral process. Apparently, New Hampshire is too white for Biden. Well, freedom doesn't have a skin color. New Hampshire is the first in the nation primary for a reason, and we're going to keep it that way. Third-party candidates are shaking things up in the 2024 presidential race. A new poll by The Messenger and Harris reveals RFK Jr. and Cornell West independent campaigns are hurting both Biden and GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. The ex-president led Biden 45 to 41 percent, but when RFK Jr. and West were thrown in the mix, the Don's lead dipped, earning 38 percent of the vote, followed by Biden at 35 percent, Kennedy at 13 percent, and West at 2 percent. The migrant crisis is apparently pummeling Biden's poll numbers in New York, a deep blue stronghold. In 2020, he won there by 23 percentage points, but his lead over Trump has shrunk in New York to just nine percentage points, which a Siena College poll found might be attributable to the influx of migrants in the Big Apple. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the thing that jumps out to me there is uh, those RFK Jr. numbers are pretty, are pretty big. Um, what, 13 percent? I mean, he was up at 20, 21 percent, right? Well, that was—but that wasn't that—that that was specifically against Biden. I thought those were—that uh, was a, a, pri a, a, a just running against Biden number, right? This sure. Is, this is against both of them. Sure. So sure. It's uh, um, sizable to I mean, I do think—I mean, the, the, the news of it, the relevance of it um, is the extent to which the third-party candidates seem to be hurting Trump more than Biden, yeah. which is a big turnaround from, I think, what— people might have considered in the beginning when he was running as a Democrat and was getting so much attention from right-leaning right news sources, perhaps for that very reason, because uh, yeah. he was a contender to Joe Biden. I do wonder, I continue to wonder if we're going to see any change of attitude toward him. Now, I, I frankly haven't seen him in as many high-profile interviews. Um, I, it's been a while. I, I'm not checking on a daily basis, but since I've seen him do a Twitter spaces or anything like that, I have seen him do more podcasts and things like that, but not as many, certainly not the town halls and the, um, the primetime Fox News segments mm. that it was doing in the earlier days. And I wonder if that is because there's a concern that he's going to hurt the Republican Party. Mm. So what about uh, this story of Biden not being a participant in uh, New Hampshire? Uh, so obviously you've talked about Biden's efforts to um, kick things off in a state that is more favorable to him, South Carolina, um, and, you know, that being the— I, I, So I don't agree with Vivek that, like, New Hampshire has some right to be the first— to be the first voting state, it, it, but, but it is also at the same time true that Biden wants to kick things off in a state favorable to him, Yeah, if, if, if Vivek totally wants to say uh, New Hampshire is first for a reason, I think he should articulate that reason. Now, is Biden doing a cynical reordering of the states to benefit him electorally? Of course that's true. Uh, the, if you go back to 2020, Biden didn't win a primary state until the fourth one, South Carolina, and he fared pretty poorly in some of those first contests, I think coming in fourth or fifth um, in some of those early states. So I understand why he would not want any of them to go first, including uh, um, Nevada, which is in no way a white state. It has um, you know, a very large Latino population. So he, very, he, you know, he didn't just skip over Iowa and New Hampshire. He also skipped over uh, Nevada. So it's not clear 
how or why Vivek is injecting race into the conversation this way. I'm not sure this is an identity politics move, unless by identity politics you mean specifically black voters who he does do well with. But I think people should be more precise in their terms. Um, what does identity politics mean? If you want to say that Joe Biden is trying to court a base that has been very sympathetic to him, black voters, and then skip to a black state, I think that you should just say that. Yeah, it's not really about identity politics, but it is about Biden trying to stack the schedule in a way that's favorable to him, which he tried to do. And there are many other states, of course, that he did well in um, that aren't South Carolina. Uh, But I do think that he was—he's able—the Democratic Party is able to launder it and kind of justify it by saying that some of the earlier states were less representative of the American public population-wise and to get a better sense—since early primary wins do tend to set the stage for what later states want to do— it makes more sense to have a state that's more reflective of the broader demographic go first. I mean, I don't think that's actually bad logic, but I do think it's very interesting that even the Democratic Party is not interested in a state like Nevada going first when there are more Latinos in America than black people. Um, and again, because it's not because they no, actually they, they want care a pro about Biden the, state exactly, going first. Exactly. Well, and, and, race is just and I don't understand this um, this um, comment from the from from the spokesperson that well, Biden already has the. Biden's doing well in what in the general election in New Hampshire against Trump, so we don't need to kick up, we don't need to participate there. Yeah. What? That doesn't make any I, sense it, it at almost, all. If, now that I'm looking at it again, it kind of feels like he's saying, even if New Hampshire voters are very, very angry about being booted from the, the front seat, that they're going to suck it up and eat it, just like all mm-hmm. the Democratic voters always suck it up and eat it when we tell them to vote blue no matter who, right. no matter what the Democratic Party does, because what do they have to do? What's their alternative? Um, and the polls suggest that Demo- they're going to want a Democrat. They're going to want a generic Democrat against the generic Republicans. So they're going to vote for Biden no matter how much he disrespects them in the primary. Despite all these polls we're seeing in swing states in Michigan, in Arizona, showing a very competitive race, if not Trump sometimes well ahead. I know this is just one snapshot, and we'll take uh, many more snapshots as we get closer to the actual election. But um, I, I wonder if behind the scenes Team Biden is really really worried, really sweating. They have to be. How could they look at these things and not be? I I would think that they would have to be, except, I'm sorry, I brought this up yesterday, that Ron Klain's response to someone raising Right, what are Muslims going to do, vote for Trump? No, he specifically said Trump voters are going to Trump. So he accused Muslim voters who are specifically upset about almost 6,000 Palestinian innocents being killed in Gaza at this point, and our government facilitating this and funding it and potentially putting troops on the ground and missiles that are being picked up in Gaza having American manufacturers from Minnesota written on the bottom of them, people who are articulating that very specific concern are being dismissed by the former White House chief of staff as Trump voters, core-based Muslim voters in a state that you need, like Michigan. I mean, so I, I'd like to think that people are concerned, but that kind of a response does not express concern. It, respects, it, it, it reflects indignation and entitlement to people's votes that we frankly have seen, I think, most encapsulated by Hillary Clinton's attitude in 2016, but which has been very pervasive in the Democratic Party and I think might um, come back and bite it in the tuchus. Yeah, well, we'll see. More rising right after this. Will the government finally stop meddling with social media? Now, the Supreme Court has agreed to consider whether the Biden administration's efforts to curb online, quote-unquote, misinformation during COVID and on other subjects was unconstitutional. Last week, the court stopped a preliminary injunction aimed at preventing federal officials from 
potentially unconstitutionally interfering with content moderation decisions by social media platforms. Now, while agreeing to decide the merits of the case, this case being Murthy v. Missouri, it used to be called uh, Missouri v. Biden, uh, it began with a lawsuit by the attorneys general of Missouri to Louisiana and was joined by multiple social media users who claimed that their posts were downgraded or deleted because of pressure from the federal government on the social media platforms. Now, at this time, the Biden administration remains free to resume contacts with social media companies. So there was a preliminary uh, injunction with the, the local um, judge, uh, Judge Dowdy, agreeing with the argument that the, the censored accounts were making, that it was improper, the level of contact the federal government had had with them. And he made a list of behaviors that are no longer permissible and that are permissible. And we discussed that and whether that was actually workable distinctions. Then the fifth, so then the Biden administration appealed. They said, no, we want to be able to pressure companies to censor if we so choose. That doesn't violate the First <laughs> Amendment. They appealed. It went to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit narrowed um, uh, gave a little bit more power back to the federal government to have contact, but did not invalidate the underlying ruling. Again, an appeal. Now the Supreme Court is saying that, for the time being, this, the federal government can totally resume the contact with social media companies, but we're going to look at the issue. So now the Supreme Court will be taking on this case. And you can tell from the fact that Justices Alito, Thomas and Gorsuch, they thought the, 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 the ban on the federal government should actually stay in place while they considered that. I would think that's probably three votes to endorse the underlying idea that it, it was improper. I would suspect you're going to end up with more votes <laughs> eventually, um, possibly even some, some yeah. liberal people. It I mean, is, this, is, this is not really a partisan issue. No. And it is interesting that the injunction was lifted while they're deciding this decision, which I think militates in the opposite direction of the three votes. Um, yeah. That you, that you just pointed to. I mean, look, there, this is never—the the timing of this could not be more salient to what's going on in the public right now, as we covered in uh, earlier in the show. You have reporting that Anthony Blinken has reached out to try to change the content that Al Jazeera, one of the only news orgs that is doing live streams and really consistent coverage from the ground in Gaza— puts out because it believes its reporting is too sympathetic to Gazans uh, and too sympathetic to Palestinians. They so far have not um, tried to influence Al Jazeera English. I'm not sure if it's because, potentially, it would be implicated by a decision like this. But the fact that they are already trying to lean on um, the main, main Arabic uh, Al Jazeera, I think, speaks, speaks volumes. And if we are heading into a wartime setting, a wartime footing, we have to take the lessons of the post 9-11 era and not make ourselves vulnerable as a country to the kind of infringements on speech and personal liberties that we allowed after 9-11 to a horrible effect, I would argue. Not just TSA, which I know is a personal bugaboo of yours. I, was, I flew back here yesterday <laughs> and was got a very heavy pat down, as I so often do. But yeah, fun? I mean, the, we have seen, you know, many stories we've covered, whether it's uh, the uh, Israel's Instagram account uh, targeting uh, American Palestinian, um, I'm afraid of his Bella or Gigi Hadid, but one of the Hadid mm -hmm. sisters, um, whether or not it's um, the uh, 
the the IDF a former uh, Israeli figure who was uh, so close with Netanyahu was tweeting the information about mm -hmm. the bomb blast that the hospital bombing that caused so much confusion on the internet, taking credit for it before denying credit for it. Um, its social media accounts have been working on overtime, I think, because they do understand that public opinion is shifting in these really interesting ways right now, largely because of the on-camera footage that is coming out of Gaza that didn't used to exist in a year in years obviously before social media, and. I think we can read into efforts to push back against the various narratives, whichever side you agree with, with an understanding about how important public perception is. And the U.S. government having any authority on managing that public perception in these discrete, undisclosed ways is a huge issue. It's a huge yes, issue. We can't um, overstate how important this case is going to be for the government's ability to pressure independent uh, media organizations, to pressure anyone to, to restrict, to sculpt the narrative in a way that the federal government thinks is favorable to itself. Um, we, I think that violates the First Amendment, but we're going to find out whether it, whether it walks some line. This is the Supreme Court technically says, well, because obviously we couldn't, they, the federal government couldn't pass a law, couldn't order. Um, can't actually order Facebook to take down content. Can't actually or order a media company to, to not publish something or to censor something. They can't. They couldn't pass a law to do it. They couldn't order them to do it. So the question is, can they say, we would really like you to take this thing down. We think it's very harmful. It's dangerous. It's hateful. Um, we think it violates your policies. Actually, we think it's misinformation. We think it's of illegitimate or fraudulent origin. And um, you know, we might be publishing a report next week on how. Your organization doesn't take these threats seriously, and we'll probably be talking to other media outlets about how you failed on this front. And there's going to be a hearing um, in a month on how um, your organization and organizations like you have failed, and that we might be revisiting the regulations that affect you based on your failure to respond to our yeah. inquiry in a prompt and favorable way. Yeah. Does that violate the right. First Amendment? We're going to find out. And, and look what happened with Russiagate. Even floating to these organizations that a certain kind of policy choice might help Russia. You should be looking out for Russian disinformation, even seeding the field in that way, caused kind of independent, technically independent decisions to be made within Twitter that were ultimately reversed and regretted. So uh, given the high temperature of the conversation here, where so many people have already been fired from their jobs. Um, dismissed from media organizations, um, uh, you know, had their uh, students being threatened on college campuses, professors writing, don't hire my law students because they're anti-Semites, because they've vocalized a support of, 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 of Palestinians. I do think this is just the tip of the iceberg, and that's what's happening kind of on an individual basis on a fairly regional level. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really concerned uh, about what this could end up manifesting into. And I do think all eyes really should be on the outcome of the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, we will, of course, be covering that as it takes shape and hoping to see that, I, I'm hoping to see that a number of other justices perhaps privately share the concerns that um, Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch clearly do. And that, you know, so many of us do on both on the right and on the left, that just the power for the federal government to shape the discourse in this way is is used for ill, is inappropriate, and, and violates the spirit of our free speech protections, and then
possibly, I'm hoping, does literally violate the actual tenets of the First Amendment. Yeah, because they're, you know, they're going to say this is in our national security interest to suppress yeah. pro-Hamas speech. Yeah. That's going to like be the line. Just they said it was in public so. health interest to suppress alleged misinformation about, uh, about COVID mitigation strategies. And national security interests uh, to suppress Russian Russian bots that weren't even Russian bots, that yeah. were just actually American people. They were convinced they were Russian bots. They were told by the social media companies, no, those are real people, and they didn't care. Yeah. More rising right after this. A group of students at George Washington University drew ire Tuesday night after projecting anti-Israel messages as well as criticism of the university and its president, Ellen Granberg. Glory to the martyrs, free Palestine from the river to the sea, end the siege on Gaza, GW, the blood of Palestine is on your hands, President Granberg is complicit in genocide in Gaza are some of the messages that were projected on this outside wall of the Gelman Library. Now, lawmakers on Capitol Hill blasted the move. Utah Senator Mike Lee posted on X, quote, the students responsible for these messages aren't severely punished by GWU. Something is terribly wrong. Genocide isn't hip cute or in any way acceptable, GWU, do the right thing now. Florida Congressman and GW alum Jared Moskowitz posted, quote, as an alumni of that university, they should launch an investigation. I look forward to seeing the university statement on this. According to the university's paper, the GW hatchet, President Granberg has defended students' right to free expression, but condemned rhetoric that, quote, glorifies acts of violence. Yeah, what seems interesting about this is that there's a real semantic disagreement that's happening here, where many Muslims Ameri Muslim Americans, including Walid Shaheed, uh, Justice Democrats formerly, I believe, uh, who says, well, he doesn't contone this message, presumably because he thinks it's bad optics. His experience as a Muslim is that the word martyr, this is what he tweeted, um, it is important to understand for two billion Muslims worldwide, the word martyr in Arabic also refers to a civilian casualty in war. For example, on someone's tombstone, tombstone, it might say, martyr Fatima Nasir, who tragically lost her life in war. So, you know, if these students, perhaps ill-advisedly, from an optics perspective, use the word martyr when, it, in, uh, when referring to the almost 6,000 now um, innocent Gazans who have been slain by Israel in the last uh, two-plus weeks, that seems perfectly legitimate. And it does seem a little odd for the university minister to come forward and say, um, we don't want to glorify genocide when it seems that these students are very specifically arguing against genocide against Palestinians? Uh, okay. I think many people would rationally interpret glory to the martyrs to be an endorsement of the terrorist actions, the martyrs being people who have been killed, engaged in the terrorist actions against the Israeli people which is why this is such an objectionable statement, um, and why like anti-Semitic people clarify, um, flagged it as deeply anti-Semitic. It should be pretty easy to clear up if you approach the students in good faith and ask them, well, do you mean Hamas, or do you mean the almost 6,000 people right. in Palestine who have been killed? At very least, you could have a more specific conversation. If they, in fact, say that they believe that Hamas is um, the elected government of Gaza and that they have a right to resist and they support that and they may or may not support the killing of innocent civilians, then you can get into a conversation about whether or not that is, in fact, an endorsement of targeting civilians that the university does not want to condone. 
but it, it seems a little premature given the context that apparently millions of Muslims understand and the word martyr being used somewhat differently. Yeah, I mean, if they, <laughs> they I guess they could have made it crystal clear if they had just like projected a swastika on the dorm where Jewish students are staying. That why would they would do make that? It abundantly clear. Why, why, why would pro-Palestinian advocates at GW project a, a swastika on Jewish students' Because stores? they're glorifying violence against Jewish people. I mean, that is what, that is what so many leftist activists are doing over and over again, I, and I'm calling it I'm out sorry. as bad. I'm not, I, I'm, I don't I'm care if I'm they're investigated confused. or, but we're happy to, to call them I'm confused. Them so you're, what you're saying is that you reject a whole cloth what Walid Shahid is saying about the use of the word martyr here. And you're saying not only that, but you're saying that you think that the people these, these students are advocating for, the, the murder indiscriminately of Jewish people? I'm saying if they had done that, there would be no, would anyone argue that it shouldn't be investigated, right? No. If it was a swastika? And, and if I, um, you know, wave a machete around on the set right now, that would also be a threat, but that is not what's happened. So let's talk about what's happened. What's happening is that they projected the following phrases. Glory to our martyrs, divestment from Zionist genocide now, free Palestine from the river to the sea. So let's talk about those three phrases and what's objectionable in them. The martyr phrase Muslims have put out there, people have seem to have corroborated that it can be open to some um, interpretation and that it's a phrase that's commonly used on tombstones of innocent people that were killed by attacks. You know, that's disputable. If you think that it's poor optics, I think that's a perfectly re Again, reasonable— and, and the swastika was like an Indian peace <laughs> sign, right, before it got appropriated by— the Nazis, but you think that's none equivalent? of us think that that's what their you th people you mean when they draw you think that's that. Equivalent? Well, I think if I went into an old building from like 1750 and saw that the trellis around the edge, the, around the edge of the walls or the floors had swastikas in them, I would look at the context and say, okay, this is probably not about just, Nazis because Nazis didn't exist when this house was I think built. At some point, it's so obviously excuse making for people who condone violence. I mean, for people who are tearing down on various campuses the flyers of the abducted um, Jewish um, people uh, yeah. that being held hostage. Those are being ripped down by um, pro-Palestinian activists in very, on various campuses. Um, again, I've read the, the, the tweet from the Black Lives Matter group that was the, was the paragliding. The, the, like, there are, I, yeah, it, but, but they don't is, speak for all people. This is what's a little but, confusing to me, Robbie. On an individual basis, I don't think that people should tear down those signs. I think what they should do is put up the signs of all of the Palestinians that are getting murdered. I think that would be a much more Fine. effective form of protest. But that's because I think it's a much more effective form of protest. And I do think that while a translation error, I, I think that's really credible, frankly. If you can point to me a, to a bunch of tombstones, what are you going to say? Someone went back and changed all these tombstones? If you can point to me that it's very common in Arabic and in Muslim communities to refer to deceased as martyrs, you know, who were innocents, then I think that's really credible. But we've also seen a long trend of phrases that do not have any anti-Semitic um, intent or implication built into them described as such. Being anti-Zionist has been described as anti-Semitic, and members of the ADL and other groups have specifically redefined Zionism in a way that implicates anti-Semitism, so that you can't say that you're against a 
Nakba. You can't, you can't say that you're against expelling 700,000 Palestinians from their land in 1948. You can't say that you're against Palestinians being kept in an open-air prison. Or you can't say that you're for an integrated state in which both Palestinians and uh, uh, Arab Palestinians and Jewish Israelis are given equal rights under the law without that being considered to be anti-Semitic, because the implication is people say, well, the Arabs will kill all of the Jews anyway, so we have to keep them in a cage. So, you know, I'm, I'm pushing back against this because of that reason and also because I don't choose to do this because I think I don't want to ever say or do things that generate antagonism toward innocent members of the Jewish community. But I could sit here and play to you a number of clips from pro-Israel rallies, which I have alluded to, but which we have never played, in which Jewish protesters say we need to burn, raise Gaza to the ground, turn it into a parking lot, incinerate them. Uh, we just talked about Ben Shapiro saying that um, uh, uh, Israel, uh, Arabs like to live in sewers and Israelis like to build things. And more important than these individual actors, we've had members of the government of Israel. Those things aren't passing well, wait a minute, by wait a unnoticed. Minute. They're getting tons well, wait a minute, of contribution. Robbie. In fact, when Ben Shapiro said Can I just that, finish it generated this one a lot of— Can I finish it? Because you want to cut me off because you don't want me to say it because it's so heinous that a person would say this. You want to sit here and read this off, it's fine. But I want to say out loud the heinous, inhumane, dehumanizing statements that have come out of not random students at a university, but from our government and from Israel's government. Because right, you don't Israel, care what the university Because Israel say. referred to Palestinians, that, that um, spokesperson, that government member, as human animals. Human animals. So I want to have a conversation that's proportional. It's not that I don't care. I think that there should be an investigation into what these students meant. And you should not impute what I feel onto me when we're trying to have a good faith conversation. I've said what I feel. I feel like there should be an investigation into what the actual intent was, because anti-Semitism is not okay on campus. But I do have a problem with the proportionality when there are literal people making policy decisions about incinerating and committing a genocide on a population of 2.3 million people that are not taken at the, with the same gravity as the attention that is paid it's to not, what a bunch of GW not, students It's think. not remotely equivalent. It's not remotely equivalent. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, here, we're not paying equal attention to these things. We are, we are covering every day quite a, quite a lot the decisions being made by the Israeli government and the U.S. government, and we're criticizing it. We're openly criticizing it. And that's appropriate to do. Um, I don't want to be accused of downplaying the seriously bad—I mean, they are bad optics, <laughs> that, as you admit—and mm -hmm. the, the, the really ugly and horrific things that certain activists are doing and saying that will, frankly, turn everyone off of the, of the project of equal treatment for the Palestinians, um, because it's so bad and so gross. What I'm sorry, you're concerned that we should no longer care about a genocide against 2.3 million people and all these images of babies being lifted from the rubble because some GW students said something, even if it were, even if they were anti-Semitic, they're fully anti-Semitic, that their existence would turn you off of wanting to pre prevent that humanitarian crisis from happening? Ripping down pictures of people who are being held hostage and being on video doing that is undermining the Palestinian cause. That's interesting, because I, 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 I can that. just speak for myself that hearing Israelis talk about Palestinians as 
rats and sewer creatures and uh, pulling up lawn chairs, as happened in Israel, to watch um, Palestinians getting bombed as though it was a sporting event. And the incident of the great um, return in 2018, March of Return, where IDF snipers shot at the legs and feet and needs of hundreds of people who were Palestinians who were peacefully protesting, none of those actions make me want to be anti-Semitic or to be indifferent to the well-being of Jewish people in the United States, in Israel, and across the world. So I hope that everybody can hold in their ha head the idea that people and certain groups might engage in behaviors that you don't personally agree with without having such a kind of weak moral constitution that you were suddenly indifferent to genocide, whether it is a genocide against the people of the Israel or a genocide that is currently ongoing against the people of Palestine. I mean, we're just going around in circles. It is. It betrays a weak moral constitution to endorse what Hamas did, and that is. And and if these certain activist groups don't endorse it, they should make that a whole lot clearer than they have. Yeah, and some groups have fine. made it have left it very open to interpretation that they do, and that's a monstrous thing and bad optics, as you pointed out. Yeah, they, there should be an investigation, as I said. All right, more rising right after this. We have Republican candidate for president, Vivek Ramaswamy, joining us now. Welcome to the program. Good to see you guys. Well, let's get right into it. We've obviously been covering the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, quite a bit on the show. You said that USAID to Israel should be contingent on their plan for Gaza. You know, there is disagreement on the right right now about what should be the U.S.'s foreign policy more broadly. We talked early in the show about Ben Shapiro clashing with Tucker Carlson, Tucker being a more of a voice for restraint, Ben Shapiro, you know, wanting to give Israel whatever it needs and then some. Um, how, where do you fit in on this question? What would be—what do you think the U.S. policy should be? What would it be uh, if you were president? Sure. So I think that there are two reasonable paths here. I have a preference between those paths, but they're at least coherent. One is actually embracing the true Israel first and true America first view. That's what I favor. And the founding of Israel was based on the idea that Israel has an absolute right to national self-existence and to defend itself as it appropriately should. And I stand for that view, Israel's Israel first view. I'm an America first leader of the United States that says every decision I make as the U.S. president is made with a moral obligation to the American people. So what does that mean in terms of policy? I think we should provide Israel a diplomatic iron dome that stops any other country or the U.N. or anybody else criticizing or getting in the way of Israel substantively defending its own homeland. That attack by Hamas on Israel, it was inhumane. It was, it was subhuman. It was barbaric. And Israel absolutely has the right to defend itself and our job can be a diplomatic one to give Israel the air cover that it needs diplomatically to be able to do that. I think that's the cleanest solution for all. I think that we have been wrongfully engaged with military presence in the Middle East for decades that has not served us well. However, if we're, I'm not president yet, if we're going down the path of talking about complex forms of aid, financially or militarily or otherwise, then yes, the U.S. and my job as the U.S. president will have to be to then ask demanding questions about what exactly is the plan for a ground invasion of Gaza? Is it a prolonged conflict? Is it one that results in a likely two-front war that further draws the U.S. in? We have to have clear answers to those questions so that we can clearly state this is what we will and what we won't support. Right now, I'm worried we live in the worst of both worlds, though, which is neither of those two reasonable options. 
but a third reasonable option that vaguely has some ill-defined financial and military commitments when we don't even understand what exactly those objectives are. So do I think Israel has to answer to the United States? No, Israel doesn't need the U.S. permission to do what it needs to to advance its own interests. But if there's going to be a serious discussion about U.S. involvement, then yes, it's the job of the U.S. to ask those questions. I think that's a coherent position. It's my view. It's one that probably other Republicans, some of them behind closed doors, would share if they weren't so scared of their own shadows in being labeled anti-Israel if they say this. The irony is that this isn't anti-Israel. This is deeply pro-Israel, aligned with the original founding vision of Israel itself, that it has the right to defend itself. And that's what I stand for. I'm an America First leader, and I endorse Israel pursuing an Israel First agenda as well. So help me understand uh, your distinction between yourself and other candidates. It does seem to me that constructively what you're saying is that the U.S. would continue to fund the Iron Dome. Uh, it provides around $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel, including for that purpose, every year. And so it does sound like you're in line with the Republican and Democratic establishment in continuing funding, military Brianna, funding I, I for Israel. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So I I was using an expression of the diplomatic Iron Dome. So what does was, that mean to you? Of, yeah, it was a turn of phrase. Uh, so, so fair enough. Let me, if it was unclear, let me explain it. What I mean by that is there's been a long habit of the UN and other institutions pressuring Israel to take steps that would not allow it to fully defend itself, creating a false equivalence between Israel's national self-defense and the actions of Hamas or the other terrorists who target Israel. So my view is we should diplomatically, as a matter of diplomacy, stand publicly at the UN or otherwise in favor of Israel's ability to come to its own national self-defense. Okay, I think I understand. Without any, yeah, yeah, without any U.S. involvement. So, you know, there's the physical Iron Dome. I use the phrase the diplomatic Iron Dome providing that level of diplomatic air cover. Right. That's so my follow-ups would then be, would you then cut funding? Would you stop funding Israel to the tune of about 3 to $4 billion a year, the way we have been doing historically? And also on the point of uh, what the perhaps limits of Israel's right to defend itself, the question on the international community and at, before the UN is whether or not Israel's acts are, in fact, in self-defense for two reasons. One is that at this point, there has been a disproportionate response when you look at the number of people killed in the horrific events of October 7th, which is around 1,400 Israelis, versus now verging on 6,000 uh, 6, people of Gaza, uh, innocents, women, children, civilians that have been killed in that attack. Is it the case that at some point, Israel's actions against uh, got the got people of Gaza is no longer rightly considered to be self-defense in a way that would then justify the UN's attempt at having a humanitarian pause that the U.S. did veto. So I reject both the left-wing criticism as well as the neocon bloodthirst here. The left-wing criticism, though, is this idea of proportionality. I reject that because it almost pretends as though those things were happening at the same time. They weren't. Israel was struck, minding its own business, struck by a terrorist group, really, that killed 1,000-plus innocent civilians. And so Israel absolutely has a right to fully send a deterrent signal to make sure that can never happen again. Are there any limits but on that? my view is, what's that? Are there any limits on that signal? For example, if they were that's to for Israel kill to determine. every, that's for, that, I'm sorry? That's if for, they were to kill is, every Gazan, for, for instance. Determine. So the, with the U.S. backing and support, 
the international but, community in the U.S. should stand by, just hypothetically, if all 2.3 million Gazans were killed? But this is where I come out. This is where I just want to come out to be consistent. This is exactly why I think the U.S. should not be engaged militarily. So if the U.S. is engaged militarily... Then, so, so the well, question well, I, then is, if, if Israel using U.S. tax dollars were to do something in violation of uh, international law, like killing every Gazan, or let's use an example that's currently ongoing since that obviously hasn't happened. But Israel's not doing well, that. Right no, now. that's why I said let's use an example that's actually happening, which is the collective punishment. That is cutting off... Um, gas, medical supplies, water, et cetera, to the entire population in violation of the Geneva Convention, is that not the role of the U.S. or the international community to say that we don't want, at very least, American tax dollars going to continue that? And we should note that there's been an ongoing occupation of Gaza that preceded, of course, this conflict. And I would, I'm curious to know whether you support U.S. tax dollars going on to, you know, enabling what 18, inter 18 international humanitarian organizations have described as an apartheid state? So I think that a lot of those are unfair, inaccurate, and wrong descriptions of Israel. And I stand by that, and that's what I mean by when I talk about the diplomatic Iron Dome. As U.S. leader, I will, as the leader of the United States, as the U.S. president, I will be crystal clear that Israel defending its own borders, that's exactly what I believe Israel is, been, is doing and has been doing, is absolutely defensible. Israel should pursue an Israel-first agenda. It has a right to national self-existence. But I think it is easier for me to do that as U.S. president if we don't muddy the waters by getting involved militarily or financially or otherwise. So we've made commitments in the past. I always stand by those commitments. Those run through 2028. But my point is, in the context of this war, look at the $16 billion aid in the $106 billion aid package that's now making its way through Congress. I don't think it's a good idea for the U.S. to further engage financially or militarily. But the flip side of that is that Israel is absolutely free to pursue what it believes to be in its own national self-interest, just as every other nation is free to do the same thing. My job as the United States president is to the people of this country. The My exclusive obligation as the next president is to Americans here in the homeland. And that's how I'm going to lead this country accordingly which is why I'm against the neocon call as well to willy-nilly provide aid. It muddies the waters. It creates loss of clarity that then commits us to have to make judgments that should not be the U.S.'s judgments to make. I really, Those should be Israel's I, judgment on how it defends itself. The uh, Republican Party right now in, uh, in Congress, in the House, is they might be voting at this instant to potentially um, have a, a new speaker, the candidate now being Mike Johnson. Um, there's been a lot of conversation for how the speaker and how the leader affects the aid packages to Ukraine and to Israel. Uh, former President Donald Trump uh, weighed in, rejecting the more establishment candidate, Tom Emmer, yesterday. What is your view of how this uh, situation is unfolding in the House, and, and how do you feel about, you know, what, what should the Republican congressional leadership, whoever it ends up being, do with respect to the funding of Israel and Ukraine? So, look, I think that the Ukraine funding is a terrible idea. I do not think that we should be marching our way into further conflict. Ukraine has made no progress meaningfully relative to what they were supposed to make. And conversely, I even believe that we're driving Russia further into China's hands. So no matter how you measure it, this isn't advancing American interests. We're $33 trillion in national debt. We're marching our way into serious conflict when our own homeland is as vulnerable as it ever has been in modern history. We should find a reasonable path to peace in Ukraine. I've laid out a clear vision 
of how I would do that. I don't think that this should be conflated with border security funding or Israel funding or funding for the Asia Pacific to deter China. These should be debated separately. We already talked about Israel. I think that we should ideally stay out, allow Israel to defend itself, stand fully for that principle. If there's going to be any U.S. involvement of further aid at all, then we need to understand exactly what Israel's objectives are. The border security funding is going to the wrong place. It's going through actually more efficient processing of those asylum applications. What it needs to be going to is sealing the southern border instead. And as it relates to the GOP and the speaker race, look, the musical chairs we're seeing, it's a symptom of a deeper ideological divide in the GOP. Do you want to go the old direction of neoconservatism, or do we want to go the new direction of standing for unapologetic America first principles? I'm an America first conservative. That means that my moral obligation is to the citizens of this country, and that is different than the historical model of liberal hegemony or neoconservatism. But that's what's lurking beneath the surface. And so we're going to continue to play this game of silly musical chairs arguing over the who, when we should be arguing over the what and the why. What do we stand for? Why do we stand for it? That's what I'm doing in this GOP primary, and I believe I'm leading us in the direction of the future. But we're going to have to commit to that, or else we're going to keep having these silly personnel disputes and between who's the Speaker of the House or the leader of the RNC. These are second-order, less important questions than the what and the why. And I, I also want to ask you about cancel culture and free speech. You disagreed with some other uh, commentators. You expressed yourself on, uh, on X on Twitter the other day, saying that, you know, while you don't agree with what pro-Palestinian students or activists were saying, you don't think it was, you thought it was harmful to say that they should be, like, blast, blacklisted from jobs uh, forever. One of your rivals for the GOP uh, nomination, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, um, recently ordered um, Florida universities to shut down pro-Palestinian um, student groups, um, I, I think in a way that even could more obviously be violating uh, the First Amendment or free speech than, than just blacklisting. Um, given that you'd spoken out, you know, against this cancel culture and wanting to not be hypocritical on this, um, do you have thoughts on that action? So I was not aware of that action until you shared it with me, but on the sound of it, on the face of it, if it's as you described it, that doesn't sound good to me. My view is that the answer to bad speech is not less speech, it is more speech. And I think it is wrong for us to silence those we disagree with. Now, my view is those Harvard students or those other student groups, they're way out of line. They're idiotic. They're, they're foolhardy. These are, they're on the wrong side of this question. And I reject the premise that somehow Israel is responsible for what happened to Israel. No, Hamas is responsible, and that's the answer. But the way we do this in the United States of America is through free speech and open debate. Are businesses free to decide who they hire or not? Sure, that's not a legal question in the case of sure. businesses. But I don't think it's good for our culture when you have student groups that have made some stupid statements and boneheaded statements on a college campus. And by the way, part of college and part of youth is having the latitude to say some stupid things and learn from your stupidity. But then to ask the further question of what students were affiliated with those student groups and then turn them and put them onto blacklists, I don't think that's the American way. I don't think that's productive. And I don't think we convince any of those people by browbeating them into submission through fear either. That's the tactics that I've criticized of the radical left for the last several years. There's probably been no greater critic in America over the last three years of that type of left-wing cancel culture than me. I laid it out in my first book, Woke Inc. But I have to be consistent. And I don't believe in just using that in one political direction. I'm going to call that problem out wherever I see it. And I'm principled in believing that free speech and open debate, that is the path to truth. That is the American way. And I stick to my principles, principles over politics. That's 
generally my view. And so whether that's a politically popular thing to say or not, I have no idea. But it is consistent with the principles that espouse the idea that in America, we settle our differences through free speech and open debate, not through the use of force. And, and I'll continue to stand by that now. Hmm. You mentioned that you think the students are on the wrong side of this issue. I wonder if you could elaborate on what your views are of the issue and what's driving the conflict uh, in Israel and Palestine at this moment. I wonder if you could speak specifically to the ongoing uh, occupation in uh, Gaza. What, if any, you, anything you see as a solution to those people who feel as though they've been pushed from their lands and kept in what has been described uh, by a former Israeli prime minister as an open-air prison, what to do in the West Bank about the encroaching settlements that are also in violation of international law, and whether you agree with Joe Biden as he continues to push for a two-state solution. So my view here is simply grounded in, again, principle. I'm an America first conservative. My moral obligation is to the citizens of this country. I think that that is perfectly legitimate for every other nation, including Israel, to pursue an Israel first policy. But what about the people Israel of Israel has a right to exist. What's that? What about Palestinians? Do they also have a right to exist? Well, they have a right to exist, but I think that they don't have a right to attack Israel in these in these dastardly attacks that have taken place serially, that Absolutely. have had to put Israel on the defensive. Absolutely, but, but I would like my, you to weigh out My on... view is. I'm, we're not having this discussion in the Middle East, we're having it here. My view is the U.S. needs to get the heck out of poking its nose into other people's business on the other side of the world. I mean, part of the reason that you even now have bases in places like Iraq or in Syria that are at risk of supposedly being attacked in this conflict is the problem that we shouldn't have been there in the first place. So my view is a broader disengagement in the Middle East is actually the right answer for the U.S. I'm not running for president of the world. I'm running for president of the United States of America. Well, and I think we have yeah. to have discipline in addressing everything through what addresses, what really relates to the interests of Americans here in the homeland. So well, with all, with that's the way I will respect, lead this country, and I want to be disciplined about that. With all respect, Vivek, I, I do think that some people very much see our foreign policy as one of the key responsibilities of the president of the United States of America. It is. And in, included in that, is our enormous veto power that we have in the United Nations, the incredible power that we have over foreign uh, economies through uh, direct diplomacy and also through tools like the IMF and the World Bank, et cetera. And so if your position is simply a, a truly isolationist one, that the U.S. will no longer have any involvement in global affairs, that is a somewhat radical position to take and, so, and something that's a little bit different from saying that I'm going to act internationally in America's best interest. Do you see the difference there? And so what I'm asking well, you is- Well, it is, and, and, and I've never said that I want to disengage from global affairs. I think the real threat that we face is communist China. And every iota of military or economic attention that we're miring ourselves into conflicts in the Middle East with is one that leaves us weaker in deterring China from, say, annexing Taiwan, which right now, as we depend on Taiwan for semiconductors, absolutely affects the American way of life. So I think the fact that China is yeah. pumping fentanyl across our southern border using the Mexican drug cartels as a vehicle to do it is killing Americans right here at home. Mm -hmm. A Chinese spy balloon flying over half this country. Yes, these are international issues that deeply matter to the United States. But my view is we have to look at global affairs through the prism of what affects Americans rather than to be the global international yeah. police. I, I, I've I also think, been very open about yeah. questioning the wisdom of our continued involvement in the UN. I think the UN is a joke when you think about Venezuela or other countries like even North Korea staffing the Human Rights Council at the UN. 
This makes absolutely no sense. That, and if the UN or any other institution has outlived its purpose, the WHO, I will question continued funding or U.S. involvement in any international institution that impedes U.S. sovereignty. So, so just so, so my I view understand, is, just we have to, to look at this through the prism of yeah. U.S. interests. That's where I stand. So just to put a button on it, is it in U.S. interests to cut funding to Israel? The three over three billion dollars of funding that Israel. Uh, that U.S. gives to Israel every year. I understand your ideological position that they can do what they want as a country, but that is complicated by any U.S. funding. So I, I, I'm unclear about your distinction between you and the rest of the Republican field. They all still want to continue they're, to they're, fund they're, Israel. The distinction do is you? clear. That's why they're all attacking me. But, that's, but, that, but put that to one side. My view is the U.S. should focus on actually addressing the real threat we face, that's communist China. So cutting funding to strategy. Israel or no? Well, we have to stand by commitments we've already made. We're committed For through how long? 2028. Well, we've, so you we're, will continue we're to fund, fund Israel at current levels until, until 2028? I, I stand by every commitment that we've made. I mean, if the U.S. has made a commitment, we're going to stand by that commitment. And I further said that we would only cut aid to Israel when Israel tells us that they're ready to have that aid cut, which I think is in the interests of both the U.S. and Israel why? for the U.S. not to be dictating what Israel's foreign policy is. I why think Israel is it in, absolutely why has the right America, to defend Can itself. you help us understand why it's in America's interest to fund uh, Israel to the tune of over $3 billion a year, especially since so many Americans are increasingly concerned about the humanitarian abuses that are befalling on the people of Palestine with U.S. tax dollars? Well, I think the humanitarian abuses are in reverse. Look at what Hamas just did to Israel. But our reason for having Israel as a stable ally is, first of all, a lot of that aid has run through the United States, our industrial capacity, an intelligence-sharing agreement that has been helpful to the United States between the U.S. and Israel, and a reliable partner in the Middle East, a region of the world where we don't have other reliable partners. But at the same time, I believe in this conflict. It's funny, I, I, you know, not very long ago, earlier this morning, <laughs> I'm having arguments with neoconservatives on the other end of the spectrum that are hitting me from exactly the opposite angle. It, it's interesting to... There's an interesting discussion that's complementary to that one. The reality is, I stand affirmatively for Israel's right to fully defend itself to the fullest and to make Israel first decisions. And the problem is we're muddying the waters with the $16 billion aid package that isn't a prior commitment that we've made, but that is making its way through Congress now that I think is a bad idea. So my view is that we actually do better when we're not engaged in the Middle East. There's a I'm not saying it's a comfortable balance of power, but you have the Arab nations, you've got the Turks, you've got Israel, all of whom have deep interest in making sure that Iran does not expand its power in the region. That's not something the U.S. should actually make worse. And I think every time we've tried to involve ourselves, we've made ourselves and the situation in the Middle East worse off for it. When, in fact, we have a real concern to face off with, that's China, the rise of communist China, who we depend on for our modern way of life, that combined to our own homeland security here. We're vulnerable to border incursions, cyber attacks, super EMP electromagnetic pulse attacks in this country, missile attacks in this country, protect this homeland, declare independence from China, avoid World War III. That's my foreign policy focus. And I do not think U.S. engagement in another no-win war in the Middle East is going to do us any good. That's why I've been alone in the GOP, actually, in identifying and staking out that position. But it's interesting. I do disagree with the left and the left-wing criticism of Israel on humanitarian accounts, but I disagree with the neocons who are blindly calling for more bloodthirsty responses of military engagement without knowing what or why. 
I'm different from both in that camp, and that's true. That's exactly La where my position is. Last question, then I promise we'll let you go. Um, at this stage of the GOP race, uh, it's clear that uh, former President Trump's still way ahead. You, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, um, also polling respectively. Do you think it's time for the other candidates to get out of the race? I think it'd probably be productive if the other candidates left the race. I, I think it would be productive. They've had their chance to make their case. I don't think that they really have a chance. I think that I have, there's two America First candidates in this race, that's Donald Trump and myself. I come from a different generation. I have fresh legs. We're reaching young voters at a pace that's unprecedented in the Republican Party. 40% of our donors are first time ever donors to the GOP. So we're doing something that's different. I think the last debate was totally useless. The second debate was completely a disservice to the voters. Seven people shouting on stage at the same time is not useful. But I do think a, a real debate on the merits. I mean, I have a fundamentally different view, on, including on these questions of foreign policy, from each of Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. We deserve to have that debate. I stand for what I think is the vision of the future, America first. But we deserve to have that debate in our party. And, and I'm mm. looking forward to continuing that between now and the Iowa caucuses, where I personally think we're going to deliver a surprise result. Many mm. of the people supporting us are people who have never been to a caucus before, and they don't get polled. So. I think that there's a January 15th surprise in store, but the path from here to there is going to be all about serving the voters with actual clear debate yeah. about where we stand and why we stand there. And I'm going to continue leading the way on that. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. some important updates on the Gaza hospital explosion. A New York Times analysis suggests that a widely cited video of the Gaza hospital explosion does not shed light on what happened that day. The Times' Eric Toller explains an IDF spokesperson went on CNN and the BBC with a printed out screenshot from an Al Jazeera live stream showing this projectile, claiming it was the rocket that hit the hospital. We also believe that American officials are incorrectly assessing this to be a Palestinian rocket. He goes on to say, we geolocated five videos that showed this projectile launch from the north, south, east, and west by drawing lines of perspective, three of which can be seen here. We assess that this project was launched, uh, projectile rather, was launched from near the Israeli city of Nahal Oz. We cannot say with confidence what exactly this projectile is, but we know that there is at least one Iron Dome launch site in nearly the same location that overlaps from the sight lines we drew from the five videos. This site was still present in the satellite imagery this year. This analysis from the Times follows a Wall Street Journal report from a few days ago that reached the exact opposite conclusion, analyzing security camera feeds within Israel and Gaza that, in the Wall Street Journal's view and the view of experts they consulted, suggests that the explosion at the hospital in Gaza was a failed rocket launch intended for Israel. Yeah. So, we're, so the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal have now looked at the, some of the same video footage and reached... Um, opposite conclusions, as have the experts um, that they uh, consulted. I, I want to play some of what I found so uh, persuasive to, to me when I uh, watched the Wall Street Journal's video. Let's watch that. The Journal spoke to say this change in trajectory is caused by the explosion of the rocket motor. In camera three, the Al Jazeera footage facing east, we can see this minor explosion. Then, a trail of fire spreads as the motor blast ruptures the rocket casing and ignites the fuel. The rocket heads west in the direction of Camera 3, with the hospital in its path. 
15 seconds after launch, the rocket fails completely and breaks apart. There's a small explosion on the ground, then a second, larger explosion at the site of the hospital. A nearby resident captures the moment of impact facing northwest toward the hospital. Fire engulfs the courtyard and burns for an extended period. Experts say the large fire is likely due to the amount of fuel still in the rocket just after launch. Explosives experts who reviewed the blast footage and photos of the aftermath see further evidence that the failed rocket was the cause of the explosion on the ground. This crater shows an impact pattern coming from the east in line with the rocket's path. The shallowness of the crater is also consistent with impact from a failed rocket. Experts say the cars closest to the impact crater were likely hit with fragments from the rocket, causing one to explode and burning several others. So that was older reporting that this actually a pine Contra gone. That this disagrees with. Yes. Right, but it engages with it specifically yes. and disagrees yeah, with it. That's why I want to play it. Yeah, so the, the new updated reporting by the New York Times analyzed five different camera angles and showed that the specific fragment that Israel and the United States have been pointing to as responsible for the hospital uh, bombing was in fact detonated or, or, or was two miles away from this, which makes it very difficult to attribute it to this at all. So that doesn't answer any questions about what the actual cause was, but it does throw into pretty um, stark skepticism what, whether the evidence that has been pointed to is so conclusive is really exactly that. And it has raised, as part of a parcel of an ongoing group of questions, about why it is that Israel seems to be putting out so much evidence specifically to defend this position that seems to have so many pol uh, holes poked through it at this stage. So now not only do we have this um, taped audio call between two Hamas militants that they averred was evidence that uh, Islamic Jihad had conducted this particular bombing, which has now been discredited. Obviously, people feel different ways, but I haven't seen anybody really affirm that the, the language used, the tone used. I haven't seen any Arabic speakers come forward and say, no, actually, this is incredible. There are pretty significant credibility determinations, uh, not just because of the tone and things like that, but also the audio signatures and stuff in the video and the way that it was put together. Um, so they put forward that piece of evidence, which has been disputed. And now the video evidence, with it, which I think a lot of people were putting a lot of weight on, seems to not align with the events of the evening. It does seem like this is one where everyone should just sit this out for a little while and see how it continues to pan out. Although, as time passes, it becomes less relevant in the arguments that people are making, because just a few days later, obviously, Israel did bomb the uh, Orthodox Christian Church, where, so regrettably, um, former Congress member uh, Justin Amash's family members were killed, and the civilian casualties have gone through the roof now, eclipsing uh, 6,000 Palestinians. Well, I mean, I think it's important to get it right on how this happened and who's responsible. I mean, given the, the amount of, of media um, uh, commentary on how the media handled this um, incident. So I, I read, uh, with obviously great interest, um, the New York Times, you know, counter-correction, um, uh, basically, of, of, what, of their view of what this video footage shows. And they are careful to note that they're not saying that 
the the allegation that it was the Palestinian jihad is necessarily wrong, but that this specific piece of evidence that's been used to bolster that, they say, does not show that. It right. doesn't show anything, essentially what that's they're saying. Right. They're saying this is a piece of evidence that doesn't show that attack. Obviously, as I played, the Wall Street Journal has reached the opposite conclusion, and the people they consulted looking at the exact same video footage. So I, I don't know. I, I, I don't just know wanna... that it's the exact same video footage is my point. The New York Times specifically sourced five different angles that I think it says helped it have a more precise I mean, the Wall Street Journal also did that. I mean, they talk about five security camera footage, including the Al Jazeera footage that the New York Times um, alleges. They're just, they're, 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 their analyzers are just reaching a different conclusion than what the Wall Street Journal and Canada and the U.S. and Israel said, which could all be, they could be right and those people could be wrong. So, first of all, it's six total because the New York Times looked at the Al Jazeera footage along with five other videos filmed at the same time, including footage from an Israeli television station, Channel 12, and a CCC cam CCTV camera in Tel Aviv. Uh, my impression was that they were different, they were use accessing different video, um, a different batch of videos than what the Wall Street Journal had been able to look at, and that it added on, it was an add-on to the research that had been done previously by the Wall Street Journal. Um, but I do think the important point here is that after the initial confusion, I would have hoped that there was not a rush to judgment to make conclusions in the other direction. And those of us who, in the night before the sun came up, who were running on the information that the hospital had fallen and that there was um, a different kind of an explosion that would have indicated uh, IDF's responsibility because Hamas does not have that capability and neither does the Islamic Jihad, uh, were wrong in the morning about the evidence that we were relying on. Now, in light of evidence that the IDF has been putting forward, having holes poked through it, the response still has been, absolutely, it's not the IDF, instead of everybody taking a beat and calling for an international investigation. But both Israel and the U.S. have rejected calls for an international group like the U.N. to do an independent investigation, which I think raises even more questions about why that would be the case. So right. of the New York Times, it should be because even even this in just again in just disagreeing on this one piece of evidence does say in in what I read that they the argument about that's why I want to particularly play that part from the video the size of the impact crater mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff does um, move in a an accidental misfire um, from the Palestinian side direction even though it doesn't prove it beyond any kind of defeat, but is, is they're, they're not contradicting that that is a piece of evidence in that direction. No, um, but the New York Times is very clear, is, is very clear that the video evidence that has been used to corroborate the U.S. and Israel's claims does not do that at all. Right. They disagree. So we don't know. Uh, I think a further investigation would be absolutely warranted, and uh, we will continue to keep following that story for sure. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll have more updates for you. And also remember to tweet or comment below any question you'd like to ask us for Rising Ask Me Anything that will air this weekend. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.